And uh, thanks to a negative COVID test yesterday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit moving among us and through us and in us. We pray, God, that your word would be revealed to us. We pray, God, that you would illuminate our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see you more clearly, to understand you better, and to follow you more effectively in Jesus' name. I, uh, I'm going to be speaking today on the Holy Table. It's the second installment. Got a bit of a ring here. Um, second installment on the Holy Table. We're going to be looking at in, in the next a few weeks on, on Jesus at the table. and What happens when Jesus comes to the table? And I'm going to be looking at Two incidents, some theologians say it's potentially three incidents, but two incidents um, spoken of in the Gospels, and there's stories about Jesus <clears throat> and a woman and an alabaster jar. Most of us have heard preachers about this before. This is not unfamiliar ter- territory. But, but instead of focusing this morning on the woman with the alabaster jar, I'd like to look at everybody else at the table. I'd like to look at what Jesus is doing, I'd like to look at what the host is doing and, and look at potentially one or two of the other people around the table and see what they're doing. But before that, I, I just want to say, Kudzai, you did such an exceptional job this morning. That was, it was phenomenal. Really well done. <coughs> I, I've been running... <coughs> coronavirus? No, it's not. <coughs> I've been running a Bible study in my home for a few years. And the general format of the Bible study pre-COVID, or BC as we now call it, is that was a joke. Uh, is is that we 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 look at the Bible, we we be going through two books for a while, and and we look at that for an hour, hour and a half maybe, and then we share a meal together. And during the course of the meal, all kinds of discussions come up and and subjects that one would perhaps not normally discuss, come up and we engage and life happens. It's by a long way actually my favorite part of the evening. And that's a big deal because that evening is my favorite part of the week. I I love the people who gather around that table profoundly. One of the things that everybody has to do every week is they have to comment on the thing that struck them or the thing that was, uh, had them thinking or was the most profound thought from the preceding week. A number of reasons I do that. One of the reasons is so that that people actually think instead of just consuming because you have to think to feed back, right? So at the end of the year, we have um, our our year-end meal and then you have to share what struck you as most significant or, or most impactful or most profoundly for the whole year. And Zoe, my daughter, who missed quite a few because she's been studying, said this. She said she was struck by the impact of returning to a meal because so many of our meetings this year have been over Zoom. She was struck by by the level of engagement and and just the, the change, the shift that happens when we sit around a table and have a meal together. And I thought that that was a really profound insight. That was 
There's something in that. We're not perhaps quite as aware of it in, in Western society, but in the Middle East, the meal is a big deal. It's a big deal. You don't, you don't eat with somebody in the Middle East unless you have a relationship with them. I traveled in the Middle East for a, while, a couple of years ago and, and spent a couple of days in a bus. And for the first few days, the bus driver wouldn't eat with us. We invited him, and he refused. And it's because we hadn't, we, there was no relationship. And eventually he relented and he, and he had a meal with us. But I, I thought that was quite an interesting thing. At the height of, of the um, PLO-Israel uh, war, there was a, a famous meeting under Bill Clinton's administration of Yasser Arafat and, and Yitzhak Rabin, at the time the Prime Minister of Israel. They met at the White House and they signed a peace accord. And the story that went out across the Western world was these two men, Yitzhak Rabin and, and the leader of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, shaking hands on the White House lawn and, and Bill Clinton standing behind them kind of like an eagle. And, and that's not the picture that made the Middle East. In the Middle East, the newspaper headlines ran with a picture of the two men eating a meal. Because that's significant. If, if you look at the interactions of Jesus, and, and once you see it, you can't unsee it, there's so many interactions that happen around a meal. Paul, in the epistles, writes of the grace of God in terms of a lavish banquet. That's how he describes grace. And he describes it that way because in the Middle East, your generosity as a host is not measured by how much you serve, but how much is left over afterwards. That's what marks the generosity of a host. So there's more grace that God puts on the table than we could ever consume. That's, that's the overarching narrative of the whole gospel from Genesis to Revelation, is, is God's goodness, God's greatness, his lavishness, his, his love for us, his kindness, is more than we could ever use up. Back to, to the story I want to get on with this morning. This, the, these comments that I've made have, have been to set the stage, or the table, if you will, for, for the interaction, because I'm not sure that we get the whole picture unless we understand what a big deal a meal is. I'm going to be looking for, uh, Luke, I've been going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, being Jesus, to meet with him, to eat with him, rather. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind his, him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. Just note, he said it to himself, he thought it. He didn't say it aloud. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, answering what he was thinking, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher, say it, rabbi. 
A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50, and they could not pay. He cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with Sorry, you gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my head with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him said among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is quite early in the gospel narrative. The second story I'm going to take us to is quite late, just before his, his, his death and resurrection. There are a few questions that arise here. First, when the text refers to a woman of the city, a sinner, they're being euphemistic. It's a prostitute. There's a prostitute. So how did the prostitute get to be at the table with Jesus? How would a Pharisee allow a prostitute at the table? He, he registered who she was, and I wonder how that is. Did he meet her professionally? Or, or, or did he see her walking down the street, know who she was, and kind of shake his head and, and cluck his tongue and say, there but for the grace of God goes someone who isn't me. So, how did she get there? Well, in, in wealthy homes, there was an intimate dining area, which was quite deep inside the house, and then there was an, a, a much bigger area called a symposium, which is a Greco-Roman thing, which, which was out towards the street, and people would often come in and do business in the symposium. So it wouldn't be unusual if you had a, a, a meal as, as the owner of the home for, for people to gather and listen to the stories, to listen to the engagement around the table. And that's probably what the Pharisee had in mind because he invited Jesus in, not because he, he necessarily agreed with Jesus. In fact, we're going to see in a moment that that was certainly not the case, but because he wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. He was there for, for the Pharisee's entertainment. Incidentally, it's also where we get the idea of a symposium from, where people gather to discuss uh, ideas that they have in common. So Jesus comes to the symposium. He comes to the, this big table in an open area where people from the street can see. And, and this, this prostitute, I wish she was named. She, so I don't like referring to her as the woman or the prostitute, but we don't have a name. Enters the space and stands behind Jesus and, and, and weeps on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair and pours out an alabaster jar, flask of pure nard worth a fortune, almost a year's wages. Which is a really big deal. I can't imagine spending almost a year's wages on perfume. And, and that's what she did. And she poured it out. And 
a woman's hair in the Middle East is typically covered um, because you reveal your hair as a woman only for your husband, generally. That's generally why they're covered. Perhaps she had no husband, perhaps her hair was uncovered, but wiping his feet with her hair was the most intimate thing. It's something, it is, it is so profoundly intimate that it offends the Pharisee to his core that the sinner would be so intimate with Jesus. How can this be? If he was a prophet, he would know. Because when she touched him, she made him unclean. Pharisee missed the story. The story was, no, no. When she touched him, she became clean. But I want want to focus on, on one or two other things. The first is, Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So she loved, therefore she was forgiven. And then Jesus says, But he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you see the, you see the subtle shift there? Who loves much is forgiven much. Who is forgiven little loves little. See, in the first instance, the love starts. The love starts the journey. Love, love first, then forgiven. In the second part, applying it to the Pharisee, who is forgiven little loves little. That was a crushing indictment. Not much of what the Pharisee had done wrong was forgiven. Therefore, he loved little. Why? Because he didn't even acknowledge it. He didn't even see it. And and a sin unacknowledged cannot be forgiven. Do you see it? So, the, the rebuke that Jesus gives the Pharisee here is quite a stinging one. He says, this lady has, has wet my feet with her tears. You've, you haven't even washed my feet. That's the basic minimum. That's the very least that you would do for a guest, is wash their feet. The fact that the Pharisee had failed in this most basic expression of hospitality meant he wasn't being hospitable at all. At all. He says, this woman has anointed my feet with this expensive ointment. You haven't even put oil on my head. Again, a basic, very, very, very basic expression of hospitality. He said, she's, she's wet my, my feet with her tears. You didn't even kiss me. You didn't greet me. Jesus was present at the table, but not welcome. And that can be the case for any of us. So Jesus uh, demonstrates here that that even presence at a table, where you're present at the table, there are degrees of intimacy. Jesus was present, but he wasn't greeted, he wasn't cared for, and he wasn't loved. He wasn't esteemed. To anoint somebody... In, in the ancient Middle East um, is a reflection of, of uh, recognition of their place. You anointed kings by anointing their heads with oil. That's how they were coronated. 
So, so Jesus is saying, you've given me no honor. I'm with you, but, but what your body is doing demonstrates that you do not hold me in honor at all. So that's the one incident I want to talk about. Um, there's, there's a brilliant book by Rosario Butterworth. Rosaria Butterworth. Who, who was a uh, professor in English and, and literature studies. Uh, she's now a, an author. She's married to a pastor. She was, she was um, very, very, very involved before she became a believer in, uh, in the LGBTQT space. She was a uh, staunch advocate of of gay rights and, and had an ardent hatred for Christians. She says so. And she said that she needed to, she, she was writing a paper, a thesis, against the Bible and a, on, on how ridiculous it was that these Christians would believe a text that was thousands of years old and, and use it to, to beat people who didn't look like them up with it, in essence. So she said, well, I'm in order for me to, to do that accurately, I need to understand what the Bible says. So I need to talk to somebody who understands the Bible so that I can critique it accurately and faithfully and destroy it well. So what she did is she met this couple who, who were pastors, as it happened, and, and they invited her over for a meal to, to have these discussions so she could wipe out their theology. And then they had another meal, and another meal, and another meal, and, and ultimately had dozens of meals. And slowly, 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 over a lot of time, and they were very gentle about it, she came to realize that there was an actually a supernatural reality to their lives that she couldn't deny. And there was something about the Bible she couldn't deny, and there was something about them singing psalms and hymns before they ate, that, that, that she, she would look forward to and hate look, looking forward to. Because something was happening. God was at work. She then, long time later, became a believer, living in a lovely neighborhood, white picket fence, the whole story. And she and her husband and kids had a neighbor called Hank. Hank was a war veteran. He suffered from PTSD. He was a recluse. He was a very difficult, hard man. And she slowly won him over by going on dog walks with, with him and his dog, Tank, and having him over for meals. And it took, it took a long time. And one day, a SWAT team arrived and arrested him and revealed that he actually had a meth lab in his home. And the entire neighborhood was up in arms. And how could you befriend this pastor couple? How could you befriend this man who was running a meth lab in our community. And they had lots and lots of meals with their community, talking through the anger, talking through the pain, talking through the fear. And they continued to, to have fellowship with, with uh, Hank, visiting him in prison for the next few years. So the, the fulcrum, the, the very pivotal moment, the very place 
where, where the, the supernatural reality of the kingdom of God and the reality of our everyday lives intersects was the meal around their table. So she wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key because every one of us has a table. And that's where the gospel happens. A little, little setup for the next incident. I've I'm, I'm got some territory to cover, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. In Luke 10, there's this famous story, I'm not going to go into it, where, where Jesus visits the home of Lazarus before he dies. Uh, Mary is present, she's sitting at his feet learning, adopting the position of a disciple. Martha is, is running around serving, and Martha says to Jesus, won't you tell my sister to get up off her backside and help me serve? And Jesus says, don't you know she's chosen the better part? You are wearied by much serving. Then there's another incident with Mary and Martha where, where Lazarus falls ill, he gets to know about it, and he hangs around for a few days while Lazarus dies. And after a few days, he arrives at the home of Mary and Martha, and, and both Mary and Martha say to him, Hey, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. This is your fault. And Jesus weeps, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And, and I can only imagine that after these interactions with Mary and Martha, there's quite a strong bond between Je Jesus, Mary, and Martha. You'd agree with me? There's, there's, a, there's a deep relationship here. There, there are points of connection that would be beyond merely listening to an interesting rabbi in the streets of Jerusalem. Which takes us to the next incident in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So Martha was serving again. Lazarus was reclining again. At least this time he wasn't dead. And Mary was at his feet again. But this time she wasn't just learning from him. She was worshipping him. Because that's what happens when we encounter Jesus, when we listen to his words, when we're intimate with him, the appropriate response is lavish worship. I was so struck when I was reading these stories in preparation for this sermon that Mary did exactly what the prostitute did. Alabaster jar of pure nard. Very expensive. Extraordinarily expensive. There's, there's very small likelihood she could have afforded to buy it. So this was a team effort, in all likelihood. How did she know how to do it? What gave her the idea? I wonder whether it wasn't the story of the prostitute. See, when we give ourselves in lavish, abandoned worship, others follow. I was reminded by Gary this morning, 
of the rule of the first follower. There's a, there's a video clip of a guy in a park in the States. And lots of people are sitting around and they're, having, they're, they're eating and, and chatting. Somebody plays music. And one guy gets up and starts dancing. And for a couple of minutes, everybody just watches him. Then one guy gets up and follows him. And everybody dances. You've seen this, right? It's the law of the first follower. The two most important people in, in any movement, the guy who does it first and the guy who does it second. Because everyone else follows. So, so here, the woman of the city takes her most precious thing and she breaks it open and she pours it at the feet of Jesus in abandoned worship and Mary says, that's how it's done. Because she did it, Mary, we get to follow. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself out of what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it, for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews, or the Judeans, more accurately, learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Pharisees didn't like what was happening around that table. So they decided to kill Jesus, but not only Jesus, Lazarus. Isn't that wild? So, so God raises Lazarus from the dead, because only God can do that. God, the God they serve, raises Lazarus from the dead, and they say, we need to wipe out the evidence that what Jesus says is true. That means Jesus has to go and Lazarus has to go. Their preconceived ideas of what God was like were so strong, their expectations of what, how God should behave were so strong that they were prepared to break the most important commandment, the second most important commandment, don't kill to stick to it. That's such a big deal. So, it made me think, you know when Jesus dies on the cross and, and all kinds of apocalyptic stuff happens. There's earthquakes and the sky is blackened and the dead are raised from the, uh, the dead rise and the, the, the curtain in the temple, it's referred to as the veil, but it's a thick curtain that was in the, in, in the temple, dividing the holy of holies uh, from the rest of the temple, was torn from, from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth. And somebody had to repair that. Because the, the, the temple was only destroyed 40 years later, 36 years later, give or take. 
Someone had to repair that. Somebody had to take what God had torn from heaven to earth and repair it because it didn't line up with what they expected God to do. Isn't that crazy? How often do we do that? How often do we do that, I wonder? Where God does something and it's because it doesn't line up with the way we think he should do it, we actually actively resist it and try to do it a different way. So Matthew 26 and Mark 14 tell the same story. And I was going to, to look at that, but, but I'm running out of time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a video and then I'm going to wrap up with a few comments from Jesus. If you'd show the video, please. That is my favorite TV ad of all time. That is the best That is the best depiction of the gospel I've ever seen. Without trying to be a depiction of the gospel, of course. Jesus had a few things to say about um, about tables. He said, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In South Africa, we're very familiar with the idea of xenophobia. Xenophobia means the fear of strangers. It has an antonym. And it's an antonym that we see in the Bible. It's referred to as hospitality, which is philoxenia, the love of strangers. The opposite of fear isn't hatred. Sometimes it's, sorry, the opposite of love isn't hatred. Sometimes it's fear. Very difficult to love somebody you fear. We overcome fear by connection, by, by eating together, by having a meal. And Jesus says, when, he, when he's talking to those who invited him to a meal, hey, don't invite only people you know, because your reward is immediate. They'll invite you back because they're, they're obliged to you bought this round while well, buy the next one. Invite people who can't pay you back because then, <coughs> pardon me, God, and God will repay you. See, God is no man's debtor. The Bible tells us that. Part of the solution that we, the kingdom of God, through the church, in Christ, brings to the world is that we say, when there are those who don't look and sound like us around us, the solution is not bigger walls, it's longer tables. That's the story of the gospel. We're heading towards a moment in history where Jesus will gather every tribe, tongue, and nation together around the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's another meal. And that table will be... <clears throat> as level as the foot of the cross. No hierarchy, 
no distinction, all together one family. And my prayer for this community as we go into the festive season, as we, we have meals with one another with masks on sometimes, is, is to do exactly that. Bring people around you and spend the year, not just this, the end of the year, spend the year getting people around your table complying with COVID protocols, getting people around your table who you may not expect to see there otherwise. Show the love of Jesus by giving people food. Not only out there, but in your homes. I, I think that there's something truly profound and truly supernatural about the series that we're in, the Holy Table, because it's a table where everyone is invited. But you're the host. I'm the host. Um, the, the story of the woman with the alabaster jar is as much about the host who got it wrong because he didn't treat Jesus well. When we interact with others, we're interacting, whether they're saved or not, with, with men and women who bear the very image of God. And our role is to invite them in and treat them well. Hope that was of some encouragement to you. Have a wonderful break. See you in January.